This is the Author Blur Podcast, where readers and authors connect. We are here for you to learn and discover those authors who are not either large names or as popular as some might find, but they're entertaining, they're fun, and they're enjoyable to listen to in these interviews. So take the time, learn more about them, enjoy the interviews, and remember to go to authorblurb.com where you can find out more about them, about the shows, and other guests that we have. So I am here on Author Blurb talking to Steve Wanil, and or Enu. I'm sorry, Enu. <laughs> oh, for two. <laughs> you know, it's at this point, if I don't mess somebody's name up at the beginning, I'm not doing my job, I guess. You're not the I, first one. <laughs> I have a horrible habit of it, but honestly, I got your name right on the second try. That's better than some others. Yeah. <laughs> but Steve, I appreciate you being here. I'm actually looking forward to hearing about your books. They seem really interested. I enjoy history, especially American history, which your books are a historical fiction and they sound interesting. Steve, if you could tell me a bit about yourself, about your books, and let us know about what's going on, I'd love to learn more about them. Sure. Thanks. And first of all, thanks for having me on today. Um, I've been writing for a long time, uh, over 30 years, and I've only recently started writing well, I guess, because <laughs> uh, my first book, uh, Muscle Cars, which is a short story collection, came out about uh, seven, eight, seven years now. Um, and then last year, Rook came out, um, which, again, is a historical novel. Um, it's based on the life of a man named Al Nussbaum who was a Buffalo guy, where I'm from, a small business owner, married his high school sweetheart, had their first child, and he would occasionally tell his wife he was going out of town for business. But Al's business was robbing banks, and he <laughs> robbed about six of them before his wife or the FBI knew what he was up to. It's based on a true story. Oh, um, okay. This year, uh, in October, uh, my second novel, um, Yesteryear, is coming out. That's also based on a man named Franz Stryker, who is a, a Buffalo guy and a neighborhood guy. Um, and he was the man who created the Lone Ranger. Um, and depending how you look at it, he was either involved in the best deal in entertainment history or the worst deal in entertainment history because he sold the rights for $10 before the Lone Ranger became you know, a phenomenon. So he missed out on a lot of the glory. Um, so, uh, uh, that novel is a little bit unique compared to Muscle Cars and Rook because it's, it's part historical fiction, it's part biographical fiction, it's part noir, it's comic, um, some magical realism thrown in there. Um, so it's kind of blending genres together. So that was a, a fun book to write. All right. So let's start off with your first book. Was that Rook or Muscle Car? Muscle Cars. All right, so Muscle Car. And to be honest with you, Muscle Car was the first one to catch my attention just because of my personal history growing up with classic cars and muscle cars mm -hmm. and things like that. What What's the premise behind Muscle Car for people? So Muscle Cars, um, it's the title story of 17 short stories that make up the collection. And I tell people it's 17 stories about 
men making poor decisions <laughs> than my autobiographical. Um, <laughs> so it's it's uh, Muscle Cars was the is the lead story. It was the first story that I really wrote that I felt that was a complete short story. And so it got the lead off position in the, in the title story. Um, the stories are not all about cars, uh, although, they, although they certainly do appear throughout the book and, and used in various ways. But it's mostly about um, growing up, uh, life decisions, um, and really kind of exploring the different stages, I guess, of, of, of growing up as a, a, a man in 20th century America. Um, like all my work, it's based, they're based uh, in Buffalo, New York, but even if I don't name the city and you would just think it was just an industrialized city in the Northeast, if you're from this area, you would say, oh, you know, Volker's Bowling Alley or Forest Lawn Cemetery. I know where he's talking about. Um, but I decided uh, pretty, well, I would say within the last uh, 10 years that I, the stories that I really love are the ones that are based here in Buffalo with the, the history, not only family history, um, but history of the city. And I'm trying to carve out my turf, my literary turf, the way Richard Russo did for downstate New York and, and William Kennedy did for Albany, New York and his Albany trilogy. Um, so the area I'm exploring, at least at this stage of my writing, is, is all Buffalo based. All right. Now, with muscle car, there's you're saying that there's a bunch of stories about men making mistakes. What would you kind of classify those stories in? Because there's a lot of different types of stories. I know that some of the description read of a guy who's selling memorabilia. Are the stories taking place in present day America or are they taking place like 10, 20, 50 years ago? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I would classify them as, as literary fiction, um, and all all seventeen stories had been published in literary journals before they were uh, put in this collection. Um, so I was proud of that. And I would say a lot of them, some of them uh, are set in the nineteen seventies. Uh, that's when I grew up. Um, some of them are set um, post um, uh, post. Iran and Afghanistan, um, dealing with some veteran issues. Um, and some aren't really placed in time. They're just kind of, you just know it's kind of the 20th century, but you, you're not really sure where it is late 20th century. Um, but yeah, I would say that the present day, recent past in the 70s are most of the story settings. All right. And what kind of topics do they really cover? Because it seems like there's... A boxer, I think I read, which you almost have a boxer in every story in all three books, it seems like. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Um, uh, yeah, my, my family, you know, especially my cousin Dean, he's he's been in, involved in boxing all his life. You know, he was a, a boxing coach. He started the University of Buffalo's boxing program. Um, I never boxed, uh, although I do, you know train just to, to get some cardio in. Um, but I always used to go to the golden gloves and take my son. So boxing was always part of, um, at least my, my growing up and, and, and parenting, I guess. Um, the stories, you know, you know, they're about boxing on the surface, or at least that story that you mentioned from muscle cars, but that one was really dealing about, you know, family relations, you know, family relations with the brother. Um, uh, there's a story in there that deals with, you know, the, the, the aging and passing of someone's father. 
Um, so a lot of these really deal with relationships that men have with women, with girlfriends, with family members. Um, but on the surface, there's things like selling an autographed baseball from the 1947 New York Yankees team um, or, you know, talking about how rich, uh, Robert Mitchum, the movie actor, um, spent his last day, you know, uh, so we're exploring things like that. We're using cars as kind of connecting things in a lot of the stories, but it's really about the relationships we have and 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 how we we struggle um, with them. I understand, and I know at least growing up in the Midwest, like I did, cars were a big part of a lot of bonding and things like this. My stepdad and I worked on a piece of junk Firebird I had, which <laughs> I I loved the thing to death. All the way up till the day it died. But, yeah, but I mean, it's one of those things that you don't realize what's going on. You're just working on it. You're talking. So I understand relationships and things like that do come out, and that's why I said muscle cars kind of attracted me, is because it brought me back to the days of growing up where I was around classic cars, going to shows, yep. and then working on the cars, and cars always being somewhat of a part of your life in one way or another. So yeah, same, same thing, you know, growing up here, uh, my buddies and I, we did not, we had, we had junkers, we had <laughs> muscle cars, wannabes, uh, yes. you know, missing floorboards, no heat in Buffalo during the winters, um, pushing them home. Um, but <laughs> there was cars in the neighborhood, cars in the parking lot at school that were just, that were just, uh, we all envied them. Um, but we didn't drive them. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling all too well. So let's go to Rook, your next book. So that one there, that one there has me interested as well because it also has a part to play with chest, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So Rook, you said, is about a guy who's a bank robber, robbed six banks before he gets found out. But in the description, it talks about him also being a chess player. How does that all tie in together? I mean, what yeah. is the real story about? Yeah, Al is a fascinating guy. Um, uh, he was an avid chess player, and he loved the strategy of chess. Um, he loved coming up with a plan and executing that plan. And he viewed robbing banks as the same same thing, as a game, as a strategy to try to outwit out with the FBI, out with the bank guards and the bank presidents, uh, have a clean getaway. Um, and he would plan his jobs to a very meticulous T. He's even quoted as saying that um, playing, that robbing banks is chess for cash prizes. Um, that's the way he viewed it. And um, eventually he got caught um, and he was sent to prison. Uh, he ended up serving about 14 years in federal prison and he became a a prison chess champion um, playing correspondence uh, games and matches. But also, and this really intrigued me and, and had the hook set when I was reading about Al, is while he was in prison, not only became an avid a chess champion, he became a writer. So Alfred Hitchcock, Mike Shane Mystery Magazines, um, Scholastic Books, if you remember those when we were mm -hmm. kids, a Penny a Word guy. And he um, that's what he did. And when he was paroled in the mid 70s, he went out to L.A. and and uh, wrote for uh, television. 
And he actually won um, an award from the Mystery Writers of America, an organization that's still around today. Mm -hmm. And they asked him in the interview at the award ceremony, um, you know, Al, you've had the second act to your life. You know, that's what do you think? And his quote was, um, writing's fine, but I'd rather be robbing banks. Um, So he was he was kind of unrepentant to the end, but also a very smart man and a very good marketer. And he really played up the fact that, yeah, he was a crime writer and he knows crime because he lived it. He served the time and he did not shy away from that when marketing his books. I understand. Now, how much of your book is based off the reality of the story of what happened and fiction in the sense? Yeah, um, it's. The basic um, timeline um, is accurate. The um, plot points are accurate. Um, I had Al's FBI file. I got under the Freedom of Information Act and his prison record. So details about the guns and when robberies took place and the getaway cars, you know, that's that's all accurate. Um, I had a, a pretty good view into Al's personality. Um but I don't have access to his mind. Unfortunately, Al passed away and never had a chance to, to interview him. So when we talk about his personality and his interior monologue and his thoughts and all the characters' thoughts, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's really where the, the fiction comes in, where I'm imagining, based on what I know, how he would act or say or respond. The book switches points of view, and I tell people, and this kind of goes back to muscle cars and the, how the book is about relationships. Rook is about a bank robber, and it's a it's it's a crime story, but it's mm-hmm. also the story of the end of a marriage. Um, so the points of view and chapters alternate between Al uh, on the run from the FBI and his wife Lolly, who he left behind with his his small daughter, his infant daughter. Um, so when I'm talking about Lolly and her thoughts and her dreams, you know, she was not a, a, a public figure like Al was. Um, so that again is all my imagining, um, of what, what it would be like to be, uh, a woman in the early 1960s, uh, high school grad, uh, an infant daughter. And you just found out your, your husband's on the top of the most wanted list. And your whole world just implodes. That that's my imagination. Um, side story: uh, that infant daughter uh, I got a chance to meet last summer, um, and we've met a few times, exchanged emails. Um, very busy woman, and she was flying out to L.A. Uh, last week. And she goes, Steve. She t- she wrote me, emailed me, said, Steve, I'm finally getting a chance to sit down and, and read Rook. You know, we'll talk when I get back. So I'm looking forward to see um, <laughs> what's her take and how I, I, I portrayed her family. Well, that'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting so, conversation. <laughs> I can only imagine. So what drew you into writing that story? I think a couple things. And I remember exactly where I was. Uh, it was a Sunday morning. Um, they did a feature on Alan, the, the Buffalo News, um, because his daughter uh, – Allison was was trying to get his short stories all kind of collected. And I'm reading the story and the headline of that piece was, or the title of that piece was um, Buffalo Bank Robber Turned Author. A strange tale of a Buffalo Bank Robber Turned Author, something like that. And I said, wait, I'm really interested in this. And then you find out, um, you know, what such an interesting life he had. And how he was unrepentant at the end and how 
the FBI was still, you know, looking at him when a, a very sophisticated bank job took place, you know, and nobody really knows about Al. Kind of like no one really knows about Fran Stryker from yesteryear anymore uh, because so much time had passed and there's been so many other criminals since then. And I thought this was really something really interesting for me to explore um, and really dig into to Al's story. So it was, a, it was a good first novel to write. I learned, I learned a lot writing that book. All right. Now, you have another one that's coming out yesteryear. Mm-hmm. Now, that one there... And I remember watching the reruns of the Lone Ranger, which I never understood because he was the only ranger, but he always had a sidekick. So as a weird child that I was, I always sat there and goes, why is he called Lone when he has a friend? But help us understand, first off, why why you wanted to write about him with there's a hundred different people in history to write about. Yeah. Um, what was it about that? And it's funny. I've said this before. With, with muscle cars, I could tell you where I was or where I got the idea for all 17 stories. With Rook, I'm reading the paper on a Sunday morning. Yesteryear, I don't know. I think I was at a party or a bar, and somebody <laughs> mentioned in passing, um, hey, the, the guy who wrote The Lone Ranger's from Buffalo. And I said, no, he's not. I mean, I would have heard of him. I'm a Buffalo-based writer. And Buffalo is a, a town that's really good for promoting um, people from here or associated with here who've gone on to have success, whether it's in music with the Goo Goo Dolls or Joyce Carol Oates, who was born here, or Mark Twain, who was the editor of the, the newspaper here. They're very good about promoting um, us uh, creatives from this area or associate. And I never heard of Franz Stryker. And I said, no, he's not from here. And of course, I Google it. And it turns out not only was he from Buffalo, he was from the neighborhood I was living in at the time called the Elmwood Village. And he went to high school two blocks up the street or three blocks up the street at Lafayette High School. I said, well, how can I not know about this man? And I go on to read that not only wrote The Lone Ranger, he wrote The Green Hornet, uh, Sergeant Hmm. uh, Preston of the Yukon, um, the Tom Quest action series for, for, for teenage boys. How can I not know about this man? More research, and that's when I found out that he had sold the rights to a man named George W. Trendle, who owned radio station WXYZ in Detroit, right before the Lone Ranger just exploded um, and become this pop, pop culture icon. And he sold it for $10, the rights way. And, and I know. Uh, and so that got me because, again, it's a Buffalo story, you know, coming this close to winning the Super Bowl, coming this close to winning the Stanley Cup. Um, you know, it's a Buffalo story I felt in my gut. And the reason he sold it, he was not a, a dumb man by any stretch of the imagination. He was already selling individual Lone Ranger scripts to Trendle for, thank you, thank you. Start out at $4 a script, and at, towards the end, it was $7.50 a script. Uh, so why sell it for 10 bucks? The rights to everything. And he did it because he was really a big hearted man. Um, he was supporting not only his small family, but also about a dozen other members of his extended family who had lost everything during the Great Depression. So this is all taking place in 1933, the, you know, the darkest days. Uh, mm-hmm. FDR just took just took over the presidency. New Deal was just starting to come into play. People were really struggling. And he was offered a, a job 
with job security, a good salary, um, making more money than he ever had. Because uh, Trendle wasn't stupid either. He knew about Stryker's family situation. For 10 bucks, you can have all that and take care of your family. And Stryker never felt good about the deal, but he had responsibilities at home. So he signed the light rights away to the Lone Ranger. So now you have to think about, you already mentioned the TV series. We were talking radio at this point in the early right. 30s, but there was TV, there was movies, there was books, there was comic books, there was comic strips in the newspaper, there were toys. All that income Rand missed out on and it went to Trendle. And then when Trendle sold the rights in 1954, um, he sold it for $3 million. So this is a pretty good return on a $10 investment. And at yeah. the time... At the time, it was the biggest deal in entertainment history. And Stryker got like a bonus. He got like 10 grand or something, you know, just a chump change. Right. Um, but Stryker was a very gracious man. And he held, he, he handled that, forgot the one thing, the key thing, why I didn't know and why people I don't think know his name, like they may know a Stan Lee from the comic book world. Right. In the 40s, Trendle still had the rights, and he also started claiming in interviews and in articles that it was he, not Stryker, who created the Lone Ranger. And he kept repeating that lie. And there was even a story floating around that Stryker was brought in to write after the Lone Ranger had already premiered. Um, and Stryker based the Lone Ranger on a script that he wrote two years earlier called Covered Wagon Days, episode number 10, and reworked it for Trendle. Um, so that's why Stryker's name is not well known. Uh, that lie kept being repeated until Trendle's death in the early 70s. Stryker, unfortunately, was killed in the early 60s in a car crash, and he never wrote his autobiography or his memoirs to tell his side of the story. And in public, he handled everything with grace. You know, he would, um, when people in, in private would ask him, you know, you know, what do you think about Trendle? claiming he wrote the ranger um and he would say you know the people in the radio industry everybody knows me you know everyone knows right. that i wrote it and they did um and in public if he was ever asked he would say something like ah, only only god creates um and he would just kind of deflect the answer um so maybe he wasn't a risk taker a financial risk taker uh, but he certainly acted for the uh, the best for the best reasons taking that deal and he handled it with grace and never confronted trendle in public or in private he worked for him up until he sold the rights to the ranger in the in, in 54 um and he would always say hey no one held a gun to my head you know it was a legal document i i i i made a decision i was a grown man um and he he never whined or cried or became bitter or stopped writing he was prolific to the end Oh, understand. I know the Green Hornet. I'm familiar with that line, that as well, which I didn't know he wrote it. So the Green Hornet is actually the great nephew of the Lone Ranger. Right. <laughs> so Stryker, Stryker just carried that family tree of 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 uh, fighting crime right through to the uh, the the 60s. Oh, understandable. So your book is a fiction book as well. Now. Yep. There's a lot of information out there, I'm sure, about what happened with Stryker and all the events around him. So what is 
truth and what is fiction in yesteryear? Well, it's part magical realism. So all the magic stuff is true. That's what I tell people. So when you hear <laughs> disembodied radio signals and voice, ghostly voices in the radio, absolutely that all happened. Uh, <laughs> but I approached the same way I did with Rook. The I condensed the timeline a little bit. Um, the premiere of The Lone Ranger was actually in Buffalo on WEBR as a pilot, as a test run before it moved to Detroit and WXYZ. So I, I combined the timeline um, to happen everything over just a couple of month stretch. When in reality, Stryker signed away the rights about a year later in 34. Um, but the basics are the true, that's the foundation. Um, how Stry how Stryker came up with the idea using Covered Wagon Days episode 10 as the starting point for the Lone Ranger, having a premiere in Buffalo, his financial situation, the contract, um, that is all um, true. One of the ideas that I explore in yesteryear was the idea of where do stories come from? Because everyone always asks, uh, non-creative people we're all creative. Non-writers always ask writers, where'd you get the idea for the story, right? And so part of what I explore in yesteryear is where do they come from? Um, and the answer is um, they come from everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So something we, you say to me in this article, in this interview today, a year from now, I may remember and say, oh, that's a great line that he said. I'm stealing that. And that goes <laughs> in the book. Something I read in high school. I said, what? What was that? I go to the shelf and pull it off and, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I was. They happen from everywhere. Um, right. And I explore that in the book. So a lot of what happens, um, it seems coincidental um, when you're reading it. But then because you know the Lone Ranger story, um, you know, even if you're not familiar with the radio show or the TV series, you know Hi-O Silver, right? Everyone knows that. Um yep. And I have a, I have a, a character who every time he greets Stryker, he goes, hi, oh, Stryker. It's just one of those things. I don't make a big deal out of it in the book, uh, but you know as a reader, oh, that's where he got the idea. Um, right. There's a there's a graveyard in Forest Lawn Cemetery, which is in, there's a story called The Wolf Boy of Forest Lawn and Muscle Cars. I revisit the that cemetery. Um, it's a Buffalo cemetery where the most famous people are buried. You know, everyone from... From from Rick James uh, <laughs> to, uh, you know, fa famous people. Um, and there is a, a monument there of Chief Red Jacket when you first walk in, the Seneca Chief. And in front of his monument, there are headstones of other um, Seneca Native Americans. And there's Jishkaba and there's there's three or four other ones. I put Kimosabi um, right there. And... You, I don't make a big deal of it, uh, but you go, right. Kimo Sabi. That's where Stryker got the idea. So I'm taking the idea of where do we come up with these creative elements that work our way into our stories and our novels. And I'm, I'm tr trying to show where Stryker may have gotten these ideas from, um, including the story of Bass Reeves, who was a, 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 a real life person, historical figure, a uh, former slave um, who escaped slavery and, as according to legend, stole the Confederate horse, rode out to the Oklahoma Territory and became a, a 
a U.S. Marshal um, after the emancipation. And he rode a big white horse. He was a dark figure on a white horse. He would throw silver dollars instead of silver bullets. And he fought for the little guy and was called the indomitable marshal. Um, he was nothing but good and pure and fought for the law. And he, people have said that he may have been the influence of the Lone Ranger character. Um, and he's in the book. Um, so there's a lot of drawing on his history, a lot of drawing on uh, my own imagination. And again, there's some magical realism thrown in there. Um, that's a lot of fun. All right. Now, that book, yesterday, that's coming out in October 3rd of 2023. Yes. So what else do you have planned for the future? Because usually once you start, by the time you get to your third book, at at a certain point, you're just like, you know, I'm going to keep writing. I imagine you have more that you're planning on going. Do you have any future projections? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. Uh, you know, it took me 30 years over 30 years to get here. I can't, <laughs> I can't stop now. Unless I'm getting published. Um, I, the, what's coming out in, um, early 2025 is a, a book called after Pearl. And I call that my pandemic novel, although it has absolutely nothing to do with the pandemic, except I started writing it right before the lockdown and finished it almost two years later. Um, a lot of my friends, creative friends, writers, visual artists, they had a hard time producing work during um, the pandemic just because it was such an awful time. And the news was so awful and scary that they just they just couldn't produce. Right. I was the opposite. You know, we read to escape. I, I wrote to escape. You know, I turned the news off and put the blinders on and just created a world where I was in control. Um, so my story again is set in Buffalo. It's, uh, set in the early 1940s. It's called after Pearl because one of the reasons is it happens after Pearl Harbor. And right. it is about an, uh, an alcoholic detective named Nicholas Bishop. And he is the hotel detective at the hotel Lafayette, which is one of my favorite hotels and buildings and, uh, and bars in Buffalo. Um, and he wakes up on the floor of his hotel room. After a five-day bender with no recollection of what's taken place over that five days, except there's two bullets missing from his fired gun, and the police are questioning him about a, a missing woman. Um, and so the book tries to piece together the last five days of his life that he has no recollection of. Um, that is purely a work of fiction. It's not based on a, a, a real-life person like Fran Stryker in Yesteryear or Al Nussbaum in Rook. Um, it's a purely a creation of my imagination, but it's historical in the sense that uh, I'm drawing on places and you know what the early days of the war were, were like. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed that one too. So hopefully that will become a, a series. Um, at least I think I have two more Nicholas Bishop novels in me. And Hopefully I can get back to, to that series um, soon. All right. Well, that sounds good. So it sounds like you have a lot going there and you have more coming, which is fantastic to hear. So with that being said, I don't want to take up all your day. I want to give you time to get coffee since this is <laughs> early in the morning. So what I'm going to do is 
I'm going to let you go, let you have a good day. But I like people to know that they can also find your information on authorblurb.com where I have a profile of you. And they can reach out to there for you. Your website and the profile link is in the show notes. Where do you prefer people to go find you if they want to find your books, ask you questions, reach out to you? What would you suggest they do? Yeah, um, and thank you for doing all that. I appreciate and appreciate you having me on today. The best way to get a hold of me is going to my website, which is www.sgeoannou.com. That's where you can order the books. If you pre-order through that link, through Talking Leaves, you'll get a signed uh, copy of yesteryear when that comes out. Um, There's a tab that has all my events, uh, my appearances locally, um, via the internet, uh, interviews, et cetera. All that's there, um, as well as just the latest news uh, if you want to keep up with me. So I would point them in that direction. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you being on here too. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm going to have you hold on for just a moment. This is going to be the end of the conversation for everybody else, but you and I are going to talk a little bit more. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you. You can go to authorblurb.com where there's plenty of stuff there for you to find. Enjoy another author. Enjoy finding that book that you love. So take the time. Do me a favor. Share. Subscribe. Enjoy the show and tell others. Thank you.